Yeah, you would think somebody with a PhD would do better at reading comprehension, but <laughs> here, here we are. Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, how close do you think we came to death carrying that bookcase up my stairs just now? Uh, it was pretty hard. I mean, I was uh, a little bit surprised that you asked me as soon as I arrived. Hey, Mickey, you don't mind moving some furniture, do you? It's the second time I've asked you to move furniture. It is the second time. Yeah. I, 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 I did notice that, although I didn't mention it. Glad you have, you're keeping track as well. I am. I am. I owe you. Yeah, it's just like, you know, I have these furniture moves in mind, and I'm like, oh, Mickey's going to come over and we're going to record anyway. <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't mind helping me out. And you think the five foot five guy uh, is like the appropriate person to be helping you know, you you're, you're, you're stocky, though. <laughs> you know, you're, you're compact and muscular and you fit into small spaces. Yes, that, that, that is true. But I think you think I'm bigger and stronger than I actually am. I'm actually a small person. I don't believe that. I think you're selling yourself short. We did get that bookcase up the stairs. No problem. Yes, it, it, it is true. I think we banged uh, a, a couple of walls. Uh, if you were the owner of this house, you would uh, have cared a bit more about that. Yeah, <laughs> my landlord is an avid listener, so I'm sure I'm going to be hearing from him. <laughs> That's right. We'll edit this part out then. That's right. Um, so do we want to talk about what we're drinking today? Yes, we do. So uh, first, uh, I want to mention that this is a, a another donation, another donation from one of our listeners. This is uh, a graduate student right here at the University of Toronto named Jason Payne. He's a brand new graduate student. And actually, he... Um, when he visited on recruitment weekend here last year, I guess it would have been January of 2019, uh, we were chatting and I just mentioned, oh yeah, Yoel and I have a podcast. And he started listening to the podcast ever since then. And apparently that's also how he got into the Very Bad Wizards. So we're the gateway to VBW as well. It's not just the other way around. Wow, that is inspiring to hear. Yeah. So he donated the beer. So thank you so much, Jason. And um, what he got was a collection of beers from Bose Brewery. And it just so happens that last week we drank, um, I think, one of the, the mainstays of the, of the Bose line, uh, Bose Lugtread. But we're starting off with a couple of, uh, of other ones. So you want to tell us what you're drinking first, do you all? Yeah, I'm drinking a grapefruit Rattler. Uh, just to... <laughs> cement my status as somebody who doesn't actually like beer. Uh, no, it's it, I do like beer, and this is very good, and it's nice and fruity. I'm enjoying it. So in a sense, you actually, even if you drink two of these, which might not happen, but even if you did, it would still be like one and a half beers. The Yeah, that's right. A Rattler is like half and half beer and juice, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so this is half, half grapefruit juice. Right, okay. Uh, so now I am drinking, uh, I love the, love the name of it. It's called Curse of Knowledge. It's actually from a brew house called Halcyon Barrel House, which is uh, apparently um, part of the Bose family. Um, it is an organic farmhouse saison, 5.8% alcohol by volume, which they consider strong beer. I think they need to like change those like designations. I think like anything below seven is regular at this point. I agree. Yeah. But uh, let, let, let's, you know, give a little toast here. So thank you, Jason. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Cheers. Cheers. Delicious. Mm, yeah. Fruity. <laughs> Fruity. You're drinking Fruity. soda, basically. <laughs> Delicious grapefruit juice. I do enjoy it. Oh, man. So, uh, listen, Mickey, 
Uh, I heard that some dude named Don Cherry was mad at me, a recent immigrant, for not wearing a poppy, which I'm supposed to do for some reason that I don't fully understand. And then he got fired. So this is just like it just contributes to my sense of like Canada is a baffling place. And I'm hoping you can explain some of this brouhaha. Yes. So um, I suspect so Don Cherry is an icon in Canada. He is he is he's the host of a um a, a, a program that, that airs uh, between the first and second intermission of Hockey Night in Canada, which is Saturday Night Hockey, and, and Canadians love hockey, as, as the stereotype goes, and this is a very accurate one. Um, and he has been the host of Coach's Corner um, for, I believe, almost 40 years now. Um, he was an icon. Uh, in, I believe it was... Uh, 2004, the CBC, the, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, our public broadcaster, had a, a sort of contest uh, called uh, The Greatest Canadian, all right? And Don Cherry, I mean, of all the, of all the history, you know, uh, our not-so-long history of our country, Donald Cherry was named the number seven greatest Canadian. And this is like a, you know, as voted by the, the, the kind of the viewers uh, of this program. So, Someone who is very much uh, admired, revered, especially for hockey players and people in the hockey world. Um, so it's kind of a big deal that he got fired. Um, and he got fired because on a segment that aired last Saturday, which will be, I guess, in a, three Saturdays from when this airs, um, he, you know, so he talks about hockey in the segment, but half the time he talks about the military. Um, and, he ta and he's very, very jingoistic. He loves Canada, although only certain Canadians. Uh, so, for example, uh, over the years, he's said many disparaging things about French Canadians. They are part of Canada as well, uh, but they are not uh, the kinds of Canadians that he likes. Um, so anyways, in this the, the, this segment that aired uh, last week, um, he was talking about the poppy. So the poppy is a uh, a symbol that is worn around uh, the, the early part of November. It's literally a plastic poppy that you put you know, on your lapel of your coat. Men and women wear this, and it's, you kind of donate whatever money you want, and it goes to veterans. I've never worn a poppy, um, to be honest. But anyways, he is very, very pro-military, pro-Canada, but again, only certain Canadians. And what he said was, um, you know, on this on this rant, which has nothing to do with hockey, and he goes, you people, you people that come here, you love our way of life. You love our milk and honey. At least you can pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. Um, you know, these guys paid for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. So, you know, show some respect. And of course, this is essentially saying like immigrants, you know, immigrants don't wear poppies. They don't respect our, you know, Canadian traditions. Um, and he says this because, you know, he lives in Toronto and he lives in a suburb of Toronto called Mississauga, which has a, a huge immigrant base as, as the Toronto. Um, and I guess according to his eyes, he found that immigrants weren't wearing poppies. And it's not clear how he knows they're immigrants and not just maybe they're second or third generation Canadians. I'm not exactly sure. It's certainly true that Probably not that many people buy poppies and wear poppies. So people were up in arms uh, on social media. Social media erupted uh, within minutes of this airing, and people were calling for him being fired. Um, and within a couple of days, he was, in fact, fired. Um, and I'll admit that at first I was kind of happy about it. I was pleased by it because I I don't like John Cherry. I think he's, he's a bully. Um, 
I think he is, uh, you know, I hate the term toxic masculinity, but in a way he kind of embodies this old school toxic man. Um, he's 85. Uh, I should say that as well. Uh, so he's been around for a while. Um, he was a former coach of the NHL. And in fact, his last coaching gig, which was, I believe, for the Colorado Rockies, he got fired because he was strangling one of his own players. <laughs> so, I mean, the guy is like uh, kind of a brute and he uh, encourages, he loves fighting in hockey. He loves the, 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 the enforcer and fighter role. He uh, calls people, not so much anymore because it's hardly any people who don't wear visors, but anyone who wears a visors are chicken, they're cowards. Only people who wear you know, visors, you know, this is like maybe a, a decade or two ago where French Canadians and, you know, a chicken ass Swedes. I mean, he literally would call Swedish people chicken ass Swedes. Um, he would talk about Russians as being untrustworthy and lazy. So, I mean, just a, a real jingoist. Um, so that's the kind of ugly side of Don Cherry. But he's a more complicated guy, a uh, more complicated character because he does have a tender side. Um, so... Uh, well, I should, maybe one thing I should say, this is not his tender side, but it's maybe his more flamboyant side. He dresses in crazy, crazy suits. I mean, he literally, every single show is a different suit and there literally goes, he finds some draperies with flowers often and he has them made into a suit. They're outlandish. The collars are insane. Um, so, but he's very, you know, proud of his own, uh, what he wears. Um, but it's not uncommon to see him choke up and tear up when he talks about, you know, soldiers especially, but he also talks about, you know, minor league hockey and maybe like a struggling player or maybe someone got hurt. And he'll tell these personal tales of like, you know, small town Canada and hockey players in small town Canada. So he's really connected with all kinds of people all over Canada, with the exception of Quebec, where I think he really is loathed because he showed no love to French Canadians. Um, so... You know, I would watch him, but more just to see what he, how he would dress and what other provocative thing he would say. But he was no longer really, really relevant. Um, and I do consider him a bigot. And I think his comments reflected his bigotry. Um, but that being said, part of me is also sad that, that he's gone. Um, I actually spoke, to, you know, funny enough, uh, uh, Jason Payne, the graduate student who provided us with beer, I got into a pretty intense conversation with him about it because I was at first being, ah, oh, man, thank, you know, thankfully John Terry's, you know, no longer, uh, no longer, you know, working for, for this, you know, CBC and Hockey Night in Canada. Um, and Jason, who happens to be a veteran, which I didn't know. He was saying, like, he was trying to parse his words and be like, you know, yes, you know, he said you people, and, and clearly he's referring to immigrants. Um, but, like, are we reading too much into that? Wasn't he just simply saying we should be supporting our troops, uh, supporting veterans? Um, and maybe he shouldn't have said you people, and, should, and, and he should have said all people. And, in fact, Don Cherry, I think just today or yesterday, uh, said he shouldn't have said that. You know, he, he refuses to apologize, but he says that he shouldn't have said you people and he should have said, like, all Canadians should wear poppies. Um, and I think I think Jason persuaded me a little bit that it's not a black and white case of, like, here's a bigot that needs to be taken down. Um, I think there should have been some public scolding and, and, and maybe a break a little bit from him. I'm not sure if I, I really like the idea of, like, a social media mob calling for his, for his head and then it happens. Um, so I feel a little bit squeamish about that. Um, yeah. Uh, it seems like he had a history of saying other stuff so that it wasn't like this is the first offense. It's like, here's the latest crazy thing. Yeah. He's, that, yeah. 
Yeah, he said a bunch of things over the years. Uh, there are many complaints about him. And in fact, I, I read this one article today that was saying, well, what if he didn't, what if he, what if he singled out not you people, but French Canadians, which he's done many times? Would people have the same kind of response? Maybe not, because number one, he's speaking in English and French viewers aren't going to necessarily listen to him or watch him or be as reactive to him. So I'm curious whether whether that same response would have occurred if he had singled out French Canadians, which he had done, has done many times. Um, and I must have been part of my hatred or, or dislike of Don Cherry is that, uh, so I'm a fan, I'm from Montreal, I'm a fan of the Montreal Canadiens, and he despises the Montreal Canadiens as well. So I must have been part of my, let's say, joy, if you want to call it that, schadenfreude at him being fired is because he's also kind of uh, an enemy of my team. So, But if I really think about it, again, I don't think he should have said what he said. He's clearly jingoistic. He's clearly bigoted. I think hockey is better without him. You know, he glorifies violence. He glorifies guys beating each other up. Um, not just that. Like, even though he prized, like, the fighters and, and, and the, the, the kind of intimidators of hockey, a few years ago, a bunch of them came out saying, you know, this is a really tough role and, and, and some of us have, you know, gone to, to painkillers because of it. And he called them out for saying, like, there are problems with being an enforcer. And it's like, what the fuck, dude? Like, these are your, these are your dudes and you're, you're, you're calling them out as well. So there's no denying he's a bully. And I, and I do think hockey is better without him. But I don't know. Part of me will miss him, too. Yeah, he's uh, a part of what makes Canada so interesting. You don't like learn about this stuff until you live up here. And then it's like, it really does contain multitudes. Like this weird flamboyant 85 year old guy who just yells about hockey. That's and He's like a Canadian institution. Yeah. Yeah. I really like, it. I mean, here's a funny factor that I learned. So he always, Don Cherry was always with his sidekick, Ron McLean, who was just kind of sort of a yes man. And Ron McLean's actually a pretty tall man, but because Don Cherry's the boss, he apparently has a chair that is higher than Ron McLean's to, to appear bigger and, 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 you know, more formidable than the actually much taller Ron McLean, um, which I think says something about, you know, what Don Cherry is a little bit. Um, but that said, you know, there's also the, 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 the soft side of him, um, the tender hearted part of him um, that I will miss. Right. Well, uh, we will keep our listeners updated on any Don Cherry related developments. Apparently, there's a petition to bring him back, you were just saying. Yeah, I heard this. I can't verify how many signatures they got, but apparently it's, it's getting upwards of maybe already near 100,000 people are asking for him to be put back onto uh, the airwaves. Because, like I said, he's a beloved person. Um, and I think Canadians are, are forgiving lots. Um, and I think... They're willing to, even though I think Canadians are generally tolerant, and there's a stereotype about Canadians as well, but I think it's generally true. Um, but I think they're also also forgiving. So I think they're able to overlook this, let's say, his pockets of bigotry, um, because maybe he does, in their opinion, greater, more good than bad. I'm not sure that's true, but um, he's certainly loved. Right. So do you do you have a good segue from that to our main topic? <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Our topic is unrelated at all to uh, the, the Canadian news cycle. Um, it's actually kind of an old uh, story in some way, isn't it? It is. It is. It is. Uh, but then also kind of related to stuff that's going on right now. So you suggested, Mickey, that we uh, read and talk about this book. Uh, called The Rise and Fall of Social Psychology, The Use and Misuse of the Experimental 
method by Augustine Brannigan, who I believe is a sociologist, right? That's right. Right. At uh, University of Alberta. Wow. I or Saskatchewan, maybe. Oh, um, so he's also another Canadian, uh, Canadian sociologist. Um, and also, I, I think it's important to note this was written in 2004, I believe. So this predates, you know, our current woes, the replication crisis woes by, you know, a good eight or so years. Right. Um, and it doesn't really talk about the replication crisis or, you know, what you would recognize as the beginnings of the replication crisis at all. University of Calgary. We failed to do even the most basic research. <laughs> Department of Sociology, University of Calgary. Um, so, Mickey, uh, can you say a little bit about how you found out about this book and why you thought we should read it? Yeah. So the, the way I found out about it, I was on uh, one of these Facebook discussion groups, uh, statistical methods discussion group, and someone had mentioned it in passing. And I don't know, I was provoked by the title. So the, the title is not just the rise and fall of social psychology, which that alone is, uh, I think, interesting, um, but it specifies, you know, a culprit for our woes. And, and it suggests that it's, you know, the experimental method. And as someone who I think has used experiments, if not exclusively, nearly exclusively, um, I, you know, at first I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This is, this is like an anti-science kind of person, a qualitative, you know, uh, analysis kind of person. And, and, you know, I was kind of primed not to necessarily like what he was going to say. Um, but I must admit, after reading it, I was compelled. Um, again, I'm not sure I, I buy his arguments completely, but I think there is an argument to be made that experiments, at least as they are manifest, at least as, as they are used in social psychology, um, maybe they're, they're more window dressing than actual experiments. Maybe they're more kind of like they add the veneer of science, the veneer of, you know, some superior method of uh, knowledge uh, uh, generation. Um, but in fact, again, in the way at least it's used in, in social psychology and maybe psychology more broadly, um, it's nothing more than a facade. Um, and again, I, I'm not fully sure I buy the argument, but, but I find it compelling. And, and, and I, I'm hoping we can kind of unpack a little bit um, of, his, of his argument. Right. So he's talking for the most part about the really kind of classic experiments in social psychology, right? So he's, he talks about the Milgram study, the famous obedience study. Uh, he talks about Ash's experiments on conformity, where you see that people will conform to an obviously wrong perceptual judgment that's given by a group of Confederates. Uh, he talks about the Sharif autokinetic effect study, which is uh, a point of light in a dark room will appear to move spuriously. And if you have people make those judgments about how much is that light moving individually, they're uncorrelated with each other. If you put them together and have them make those judgments in the presence of each other, their judgments start to converge, right? So it's a form of social influence. So these are kind of like thought of as classic uh, social psych experiments that I at least uh, thought were studying things that are obvious enough to be immune from the replication crisis. So I, I guess I assumed that these studies would hold up. And he's attacking them not on the basis of replicability, but on the basis of can we actually learn anything from those experiments at all. So what would you say his central argument is against those experiments? Well, I think, you know, those specific experiments you mentioned, I mean, I might say none of those are even experiments, right? I mean, so Milgram 
I mean, there were later iterations where we compared one group to another group, but the classic original study was simply, it was more like a demonstration, right? Like, you know, you have uh, an experimenter telling um, a participant to shock, uh, to shock someone, and it turns out that a, a good proportion of people will go all the way to the end, um, even though they can hear a supposed person who they're shocking, who's a confederate and not a real person, not, not someone who's actually being shocked, um, screaming and yelling, and at one point even stops because, you know, supposedly they're, they're, they're hurt and, and maybe even unconscious, but a good number of people will go to the end. So it's not a classic, it's not an experiment in the classical sense because there's no control group, there's no, there's no real statistics, it's just kind of like just looking at the number of people who will go to the end and then comparing that number to what, you know, some normative judgment of what, how many people, you know, experts, how many people experts would think would go to the end. Um, and then one could argue the ASH studies are the same way, looking at like, you know, what, what gets people to conform, how, how do they break conformity. Um, but nonetheless, if, if, we, if we, and you know, actually this, the Stanford prison experiment, which he barely talks about here, is the same sort of thing. It's, it's not really an experiment, it's just, it, it's theater. Um, but I think his argument, even though he uses those, although he, although he does talk about more, I would say, regular experiments too later in the book, um, I think his argument is simply, you know, we have these ideas, we have these hypotheses that we've generated from common sense, or sometimes we generate them from non-obvious sources, but the sources aren't being derived experimentally. They're coming from, so for example, with Milgram studies, um, I believe one source of that was like um, this famous trial of Alf Eichmann, who was a, uh, a high up in the Nazi regime, who was, you know, essentially kidnapped from, uh, he was hiding and then kidnapped in, uh, from Argentina, taken to Israel. You know, he stood trial, was found guilty and uh was executed. Um, and he's, and his excuse, his defense was, I was just following orders. So I'm not a monster. I'm not an evil person. I'm just following orders. Um, and it seems like, you know, Milgram, maybe I'm not sure if he was inspired by that directly or not, but he went with that and then created a quote unquote experiment, a study to demonstrate that very thing. Um, and I think, so, his, so, you know, so his first point is like, you know, most of these experiments are just theater, you know, re, you know, kind of reinventions of things that we already know. And they're dramatized, dramatizations of things that, you know, we, we suspect all along. Um, and that also because we don't take seriously what our results, the results of our experiments tell us. In other words, we don't take no for an answer from our experiments. We're only allowed, we only allow one kind of answer in our experiments. And that's the affirmative answer. Um, that in essence, experiments don't really add much to our knowledge base. Um, they're more drama, they're more theater, um, they're more, they're used as rhetorical points and they elevate maybe observation and to give it again, this kind of feeling of science when it's just an observation that might or might not be true because the, the evidence you've, you've generated for it is not really, doesn't really bear on the question because you've, the way you've asked it is there's only one possible way, uh, that it could be answered. I, do you think that's a fair critique, really, of the Milgram study, where if we take the description at face value, right, it's you show up to a learning experiment, the person in charge tells you, give this other person shocks when they get the answers wrong, and then you're, uh, the demand is that you give the this other person higher and higher shocks, and this is obviously staged so that, you know, nobody's actually getting any shocks, and a substantial number of people 
keep shocking the the other person in the study when they have good reason to think that he's actually passed out or dead, right? So he's like banging on the walls saying, uh, my heart is bothering me. They, they can't see him. They can just hear him in this version of the study. And then finally, he stops responding at all and he makes no more noise. And before he's been screaming in pain every time he gets a shock and people... Uh, not all of them, um, but uh, a substantial percentage of them. Uh, the percentage I teach is like over 50%. It's like 60%, I think. Uh, go all the way to to the end of the, the shock machine. So they're escalating on every trial, right? So they get up to 450 and then it's marked XXX and they keep going on that. And then finally the experimenter stops them, right? So that doesn't seem intuitive to me that that would happen, right? That seems actually very surprising. And he did cleverly, Milgram did have, as you mentioned, data from uh, experts who thought that almost nobody would go all the way to the end, right? So in a way, this does disconfirm a strong intuition that most people have. So I don't think you can really accuse Milgram of just demonstrating what we all know already with kind of fancy experimental window dressing, can you? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I think in this case, I mean, it is surprising. That's why I think a lot of students, you know, resonate with this study. This is this is usually the first entry point into social psychology. Is this this study? And you're like, whoa, I can't. You know, I'm surprised by this in some way. The question is, what what's the point of running this, right? Are you like testing a theory in some rigorous way? I don't see how. Are you disconfirming an intuition? that lots of people have. Yeah, I think that was kind of the point of this was to show it's like an existence proof, right? Under some circumstances, people will do this stuff that you didn't think that they would do. That's the point of it. And you might be like, well, that's a dumb thing to do. Like, why Why do you want an existence proof? Maybe that's like not useful. I'm not sure. I, I don't know whether it's useful or not. It's not, I guess, I guess where I'm more sympathetic to the argument against the study is that it's not an experiment in the way that like a physics experiment, you know what I mean? Like they're not, it's not like theory makes a point prediction and let's see if we get consistent results. It's let's see if we can show something surprising. You know, I think another, another uh, way that, that, uh, that Brannigan critiques this study is, you know, Milgram tried to make some, uh, illusions with or comparisons between what he found and then what happened in Nazi Germany with the Holocaust. So, you know, it wasn't that necessarily Germans were deeply anti-Semitic or they're bad people. It's simply that they were following orders and they were just, you know, obedient to authority. Um, and it seems to fly in the face of so much historical evidence and it seems to fly in the face of his own studies. So, for example, um, in one variant of this study, when the the person who's being shocked is visible, can be seen, or is in the same room, all of a sudden compliance with authority goes plummets. It goes way, way down. But that is what happened in the Holocaust. I mean, you know, the the, the, the you know the, the the Nazis were were brutalizing Jews and gypsies and others. Um, uh, you know, right there, they saw the suffering of their victims. They directly murdered and killed them. According to uh, Milgram's studies, that's not obeying authority. That's something else. So what is he trying to explain exactly? He's, in a way, trying to give a dramatization to an excuse that one of the perpetrators gave himself. Yeah, I think that critique is more compelling to me. So I think it's often the case 
that we make sort of a loose analogy with some, the thing that people really care about. And we use that as kind of the hook. And then we're like, and then I ran this lab study. And it's really not clear whether the lab study is actually applicable to the thing that we claim to have been inspired by or claim to have been addressing. Um, and, uh, you know, we may in the discussion section say future work is needed to see how much this generalizes, et cetera, et cetera. But it does seem to be a little bit of a, a dodge, right, where you're you're trying to get people's attention by being like important social problem. But then the data that you report, even if they're internally valid, you never test the assumption that they actually speak to the social problem that you say they do. Um, how's your beer situation? Mickey? I think uh, it's, it's going down. I think we should maybe take a little break. Let's take a break and uh, we'll be back with more about uh, the use and misuse of experiments. You were right. tell you how to contact us so we're on twitter at four beers pod is our show's handle you can direct me message us or uh mention us and we'll both of us will see that if you'd like to email you can email us at uh, four beers pod at gmail.com that will go to both of us or uh you can go to our webpage fourbeers.fireside.fm. you can send us a message there and you can also listen to all of our episodes there as well if you're enjoying the show please do rate and review us on iTunes, uh, in, that's the Apple podcast directory that helps other people discover the show. Now, Mickey, we've switched beers. What, what are you drinking right now? Uh, so I'm now drinking, uh, the mainstay of Bose, which is the Bose lug tread, um, which is a lagered ale, which we had last week. Right. So we had a fascinating piece of listener feedback about what in fact a lagered ale is. Right? <laughs> I think it's hilarious that we have this, you know, beer themed podcast and I am the so-called expert on beer and I can just read. That's what I can do. I can read, oh, it's a sour hopped IPA and I don't know what these words mean. I can taste some flavors here and there. And I guess I've got like, uh, you know, I've got expensive taste in beer, but uh, I don't know what the fuck I'm drinking. Um, so I think last week we were like, what the fuck is a lagered ale? Because... 
both of those are my least favorite beers. Lagers are usually like kind of very plain, uh, light, lightish tasting beers. And ales, I guess ales have a, 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 a more of a range, but just a straight up ale usually is not that interesting. But anyway, so we got uh, a listener feedback, um, schooling us, teaching us. And admonishing us for our bore, uh, for our poor beer knowledge. So this is uh, an email from Ken DeMarie, who uh, is a friend of the show, and actually donated uh, our only ever homebrew. Uh, it was fantastic, delicious beer. Ken is an award-winning um, uh, brewer, uh, homebrewer. Um, so he explained in in quite a lot of detail what a lagered ale is, and I'm not going to you know uh, read the email, but apparently um, the main distinction is uh, relates to the hops. So uh, uh, one variety of hops uh, will typically make ale, and another variety of hops will typically make lagers. And but apparently lager, the term lager also is used uh, in a second way, and that refers to how the beer is stored. Uh, usually, you know, if it's cold stored, um, it is uh, a lager. So a lagered ale essentially is an ale again using ale hops that has been lagered in the sense that it's been stored. Uh, in a cold place, but now that I'm talking about this, wouldn't all beers be stored in a cold place? Well, I guess you store it there for a while in order to like let things settle and different things settle out, and the sediment goes to the bottom. Uh, it seemed very, very, very complicated. Yeah, <laughs> that explanation of like, I thought all beer was stored cold. I mean, not. Yeah, and it's it's the yeast that differs between the lager and the ale, right? According to the email. He said the yeast, not the hops. He said the yeast, yeah. So hold on, I fucked up even that explanation. Yes, he he told us the correct answer, and then we got it wrong. I got it wrong. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to tackle these questions. Man. These are deep existential questions. Uh, clearly, I know nothing about beer, so it's the yeast that differs, not the hops. All right, that's good to know. You um, all, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a Bose Wag the Wolf, which is a white IPA, and uh, it's good. It, it tastes sort of like weedy to me. Um, not too strong, not too hoppy, just uh, sort of like a, I would just say it was kind of like a wheat beer if I didn't know it was a white IPA. But isn't so usually white beers are usually wheat, I yeah, think. Yeah, so probably has wheat in it. Yes. Kenda Marie can write us another email and explain <laughs> what the fuck I'm drinking. <laughs> So essentially, it's a white-colored IPA. That's all we know. Yeah. It's yeah. Nice. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. I'm embarrassed at my... I, I had one job. My one job was to summarize Ken's email, and I fucked that up. Yeah. You would think somebody with a PhD would do better at reading comprehension, but <laughs> here, here we are. Here we are. Uh, all right. Well, you thank do. you again, Ken, for that enlightening email, and... Uh, you know, any any errors in the reproduction are our fault, uh, not Ken's fault. Ken knows a lot. Okay, so we had been talking about uh, Augustine Brannigan's book, The Rise and Fall of Social Psychology. And there was a part of the book that you really wanted to discuss that pertains to a conference that was held by some of the like luminaries of the kind of heyday of social psychology in the 60s and 70s. Mickey? Yes, right. So there was a conference held in 1997. Uh, that was the year I started uh, grad school, actually. Um, uh, it was called the Yosemite Conference, I think, in the Yosemite National Park. Um, and it was the point of it was to record personal memories and take stock of growth 
of social social psychology uh, by luminaries at that time uh, in the field. And some of the participants included um, uh, Elliot Aronson, uh, Bob Zients, Albert Pepitone, um, and some others as well. But I was, you know, taken by by the comments um, from this conference because, and again, at least according to Brandon, I, I wasn't there. I didn't read the book that was produced by this conference. Um, and I should, maybe we should say that Brannigan is kind of a, a curmudgeon guy, right? I mean, he is, um, I'm not sure if he's got some axe to grind against social, social psychology, but he comes off as a, a bit of a crank. Uh, for example, there's a, a, a large section of the, the book devoted to, uh, you know, uh, his anger at uh, ethics boards, um, which I think, you know, I think many of us are frustrated by ethics boards, but we think for the most part they're good things. Uh, but he did not seem to agree with that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, so from his, his opinion, um, there was a lot of hand-wringing from this Yosemite conference. Um, you know, with, with some people, and maybe even consensus, that social psychology had not accumulated much reliable new knowledge and achieved no consensus on what topics were important. So again, these are these aren't like outsiders to the field. These aren't, you know, people criticizing from the outside like maybe Brannigan, uh, you know, would be. Um, but these are insiders, people who've been around for a long time, saying, um, you know, we haven't accumulated much, and there's no new knowledge. Um, it also seems, and this I, I find shocking, although maybe I shouldn't, because I'm I'm kind of like this myself in my own history, that you know, practitioners, some of the more most famous social psychologists, came into the discipline with zero, like zero knowledge of the history of the field. So apparently, uh, Leon Festinger, who I think is considered one of the the, uh, the greatest social psychologists uh, in the past, you know, uh, 50, 70 years, uh, the father of cognitive dissonance and a number of other important theories, um, he apparently had taken zero social psychology classes before he started teaching social psychology. Right, so he knew nothing ab about uh, the knowledge that, that was generated by his forebears. And the same uh, can be said, uh, apparently, was true of, of his star student, Stan Schachter, um, who uh, I think is very well known for a, for a, a very important theory uh, of emotion. Um, and anyways, I, I find that kind of shocking. Uh, that, you know, no knowledge of history. And not just no knowledge, like it didn't really, it wasn't really important. It didn't impact his work. So it would be kind of like someone from physics coming in knowing zero about classic physics, quantum physics, anything, and being able to contribute from day one, de novo, because it doesn't really matter. Like the knowledge that accumulated uh, beforehand, there actually was no knowledge that was accumulated. And it didn't really matter because, you know, this is not a field that, you know, accumulates knowledge at all. It just kind of collects little factoids that maybe are recreated over and over after every 20, 30 years, again, maybe because of some sort of ignorance of, uh, of the field itself. Um, did you, what did you think of that? Yeah, I think that's kind of a shocking fact. Uh, I also didn't know that Festinger, I guess, sort of quit. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, he, he kind of, uh, Brannigan mentions this in passing. He left social psychology apparently in 1964. Um, I believe his uh, the first seminal 
paper, at least experimental paper, Festinger and Carl Smith is 59. So this is only a few years later. And I, I imagine like he, he did write, uh, he had a field study in a book that was generated from that field study. I'm not sure what year that was, but maybe it was right around that same time. Um, uh, but a few years later, he just quit social psychology. And I actually found a quote uh, from him that he wrote uh, in a book. This He wrote this in 1983. He wrote, um, 40 years in my own life seems like a long time to me. And while some things have been learned about human beings and human behavior during this time, progress has not been rapid enough, nor has the new knowledge been impressive enough. And even worse, from a broader, from a broader point of view, we do not seem to have been working on many of the important problems. I mean, this, again, is one of the, the giants of the field. Saying this, he left the field. He went to study vision, apparently, and then later maybe like anthropology. Um, dismayed by the lack of knowledge being generated by, I, I want to say his home discipline, but maybe not. He didn't study it in grad school and he left it, you know, shortly after he contributed so seminally. Um, maybe it's not his home discipline. But anyways, I, 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 I find that incredibly shocking. Um, and I don't think it speaks highly of, 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 of what we're doing. Yeah. So I guess the concern is maybe we got on this track of like experimental method to address these questions for historic reasons. And maybe that's not actually the right way to study these questions. Right. And if it weren't, how would we ever course correct, given that the discipline is so focused on experiments as the way to determine what's true? Yeah. I'm not sure. And it's, it's kind of um, ironic that um, Festinger you know, would feel this way, maybe about experiments and the accumulation of knowledge, because I, you know, Brannigan argues that it's cognitive dissonance. It's the study of cognitive dissonance, which, you know, was uh, you know, obsessed over by, by social psychologists for multiple decades. It's still to today. Uh, there's still some work on cognitive dissonance being done. Um, and he argued that not only was it the biggest thing, you know, in social psychology for multiple decades, but it was what ushered in um, our obsession with experiments. Um, so pre-cognitive dissonance, um, it wasn't that there were no experiments. There were, there were experiments. Uh, but there were also other ways of gathering knowledge. There were field studies. There were observational studies. There were qualitative studies. Um, and, and experiments, of course. And after the success of, or the apparent success of cognitive dissonance, um, the field went nearly exclusively experiment. Um, and again, according to Brannigan, this is, you know, much to our undoing. It's not that experiments are bad per se, but it's the, it, it's that experiments are the only way we've generated knowledge. And again, if we're doing them with like, just trying to confirm and prove something we know all along, then, you know, what is it actually doing? Is that the case for cognitive dissonance, though? So this seems a little different from the studies that we've talked about so far, where it doesn't seem to be about modeling some specific thing that's happening out in the world. It seems like more of a basic cognitive or motivational process. And that does seem like the sort of thing where an experiment could be really useful. Yeah, I, I mean, I think experiments could always be useful if we actually listen to what they tell us. I don't think experiments inherently are bad. Not at all. I think what is bad is that we 
refuse to listen to our experiments. We only want certain kinds of evidence. We only want confirmatory evidence. Right. So that's not specific to experiments at all, though. That's specific. That that's about any sort of like empirical analysis where okay, if you if you only accept the results when they come out the way you like, you're in trouble, right? That that's not a critique of experiments per se. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. But there's something exceedingly compelling about experiments, right? It's the golden route to you know uh, to knowledge. It's like you can infer causality. It's science, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Brannigan being a sociologist, he he talks a lot about, you know, the prestige that you get from being an experimentalist versus not. Right. And experimentation is being seen as like the like you said, the real science um, and that that he argues is part of the motivation for social psychologists to focus so heavily on experiments is that's how you that's perceived to be the prestigious thing. I thought that was very clever and almost certainly true. So. For me, the the concern that I have with experiments is that when we're studying complex social phenomena, there's just so much going on that I'm not convinced in many cases that it's useful to break it down such that, that you're manipulating like maybe one or two variables and then trying to draw conclusions about that broad social phenomenon. So I feel that that is orthogonal to questions of data quality. You can do a really high quality study, but if your model of the situation that you care about is so abstract from the thing actually happening in the world that that it doesn't, you know, generalize to it, then you haven't really learned much, right? You've you've kind of you have a finding about a paradigm and that's it. So it's a problem of external validity rather than internal validity. And to me that seems to be I would say that's a a serious issue with a, a lot of the classics. Um, so like the Ash line study, except if you take it as an existence proof. So just briefly, the setup is a uh, subject comes in. They're supposed to make these perceptual judgments of like which lines are the same length. Uh, there's a bunch of Confederates in there as well, and they all give the wrong answer on some trials. And uh, it, it's just the obviously wrong answer. You look at it with your eyes and you can see that it's the, the wrong answer. And the question is, what does the subject do? And they, they go along sometimes. And Brannigan's argument is like, well, anybody could have told you that sometimes you accede to social pressure just to like not make waves or not look like an idiot or whatever. And did we really learn anything from this experiment beyond that? Like, is it interesting what percentage of the time people went along? Not really. That seems very specific to that that specific setting. And then, you know, Ash did do some other variants where, for example, there's somebody else who disagrees with a group norm, right? Another Confederate. And then, you know, um, people are much less likely to conform. It's like, okay, that I believe that. Does that tell you something useful about actually uh, how uh, these group norms are can be undermined by people disagreeing with them? Like, it, it just the mapping to me like isn't that clear to the stuff that we actually care about, and that's a that seems to me to be like a really serious problem problem one that's separate from the statistics and one that I still to be honest see all the time like like I study moral judgment and often it's like well we model this situation by having people do this economic game and then they watch this person do that and then we see like do they want to trust this person or a different person and it's like I'm not convinced that this has anything to do with like the situation that you are 
reporting to, you know, the stuff in the intro of the paper that's like, um, people often need to decide whether to trust advisors or whatever. It's like, you know, the link there is important and, and that just doesn't seem to get done at all. And I, I, I think that if you were like being more systematic about cumulatively trying to understand the specific behaviors that are important in these situations, saying, okay, we think it's X, Y, and Z. We're going to systematically try to test each of these um, influences and then put it all together and then like tie back somehow to the situation that you actually care about. That's a different story, right? I don't see that that much. It's more like you start with a kind of real life thing and you pick your one thing that you want to manipulate or maybe two, and then you run your study and you're like, oh, great, it worked, you know? And it, there's just no like accumulation. There's no like systematic agenda of like trying to tie it back to the thing that supposedly inspired it. Mm -hmm. So is, do you think that is one of the causes then of this common complaint from this 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 uh, Yosemite uh, meeting of uh, lack of, of of social psychology not being a cumulative science because we kind of borrow some idea from reality we test one or if we're ambitious two very you know ideas from there and then we're like that's it we're done yeah yeah i i think so i think so and you know uh, this has come up uh, kind of recently uh people have been talking about like theory versus other things and there's there's always people always want to say that they're like the thing that they do is the most important thing that you should be worrying about first right so like is it most important to have replicability or is it most important to have better measurement or is it most important to have better theories and like depending on the person's you know personal interest they they have a strong favorite there and lots of people are talking about like oh we need stronger theory we need better theory and it's like well, what does that mean? I mean, in the abstract, it's easy to agree to. Like, who's going to be like, oh, we should have worse theories, right? Uh, but in in practice, like, what you don't you don't magically decide to have better theories. The theories come from reliable systematic observations of a thing in a way where you match the observation to the thing that you care about such that you can get actual reliable data about the thing that you care about, right? So in in uh, perception, for example, you know, if you care about vision, you can break down the process of how you perceive a scene into its like constituent parts and you can test those different parts and you can come up with a theory of how all this stuff goes together and you can test the different components. Can we even really do that for most social situations that we care about? Like, I feel like no. And I feel like when people ask me about a real world situation and they're like, what does social psychology say about this? I can give them some like general, you know, like, oh, yeah, well, we've run studies where people are willing to lie for whatever. But like, I, I can't confidently say anything about that situation or even give them real advice about like how to break that down in a way that's studyable. Like the best I can do is like well, you could try these different interventions and see which one works, <laughs> right? I can, I can maybe help you make a little more of an informed guess. And so to me, it's an issue of like, maybe the theories suck because the methods are like just not appropriate to the stuff that we're trying to answer. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like um, why you are not enamored with or less enamored with experiments is because it lacks external validity. Right. Because we've derived these like low impact, short um, studies with participants that don't want to be there. Uh, their main motivation is to leave the experiment to get their credit. Um, and yet we want to make these giant inferences about like, you know, life. Uh, whereas maybe what we should be doing instead is actually looking at life, looking at the real world. And OK, we, we, we sacrifice experimental control. 
we we sacrifice the ability to infer causality. Although you know, I think there are other ways of getting a causality, even with observational data. Um, but at least we're talking about the real world. We're talking about real phenomena, uh, and maybe we can make have some traction in, in, in predicting some of those real phenomena. Uh, but and, and so we don't need the experiments. Is that is that the, the what you're getting at, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so my personal reason to stop doing experiments is I, I just found it very hard to get these complicated ones to work anymore post b hacking. So it was really more self interested than that. And then I guess since I don't do many anymore, or I I don't do ones beyond the like super obvious moral judgment ones of like these this guy did this and this guy did this and who's the worst person or whatever like now it frees me to <laughs> see all the problems with experiments you know conveniently mm. um yeah so so yeah i would like us to do more um observing and measuring and like hold off on the experimenting for a while particularly you know it, it does seem a little bit like we want to have our our cake and eat it in terms of being like here's a real world social problem, but I wouldn't actually go and talk to the people who are involved in that problem. Um, I wouldn't actually try and like, you know, mm, interview them or give them some measure of things that I think are important there. Because what we do is we do basic science and we do that in the lab. Right. So instead I'm going to have some undergraduates play a game. Right. Yeah. But you, but I mean, like you know, riffing on, on what you just said. So what will typically happen is we might have some intuition about like, oh, this is why X, Y, you know, so, you know, when Trump, uh, you know, he demands loyalty of uh, of his, you know, people in his cabinet, um, that will lead to X, Y, Z. So let's create a study where we have a, you know, a manager who demands loyalty and let's see how they perform and will they do immoral or, 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 or moral things. Um, but it's just, again, some lay intuition um, and you're kind of, it's you're designing a study just to confirm your late intuition. So what knowledge have you actually gained other than, oh, I had this brilliant idea. It's not even informed necessarily by the history of, of psychology or basic principles. It's just like, oh, I think X, let's create a contrived situation and prove X is true. Yeah, I mean, normally you would be able to point to some past literature or something or some theorizing about something related to what you're doing, right? So it's it's not that we don't, have that it's just it, it that also kind of seems like window dressing or you're sort of dressing up the intuition as something fancier than absolutely whatever. i mean it's so easy to like come up with uh to connect your lay idea uh to past literature it's very very easy um yet it's not necessarily building theoretically it's not necessarily advancing knowledge much you know in that example i gave oh when a leader demands loyalty people are loyal and that means they might do even things that are not necessarily morally right. Um, okay. Uh, did I need an experiment to prove that? Right. Right. And is it informative about the question to have undergraduates where like, you know, I'm just making this up, right? But like, yeah. one is assigned to be the leader and the other ones are assigned to be the subordinates and the, you know, the leader's a confederate and they make demands and then we see what the subordinates do. And it's like, okay, but really like does how do you know that tells you anything about the thing that you started out being interested in right because surely you're not interested in just what undergraduates do in the lab in a contrived situation that's the whole i guess that that's the whole presumption of all this stuff is that we can contrive these situations that are meaningful models of the thing that we actually care about yeah and i guess i'm less sold on that than i was yeah 
that, 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 that's exactly right. So I, I, I have a couple more questions, and then maybe we should we should uh, leave it at that. Um, so first, is, so Brannigan uh, spends a lot of time, and we've kind of alluded to it already, um, with this idea that all social, social psychology is kind of obvious. Um, we're testing. I, you know, you use the word lay intuitions, even though they're by quote unquote experts. Um, we have these ideas about things. They're obvious. Anyone can derive them. Um, and then we create experiments that actually prove what we thought all along. Um, so there are two points. The first one is the obviousness of uh, social psychology ideas. So do you think that, I mean, that's a, that's a common thing. I think... Uh, Many people, many outside observers will, will say that about social psychology, just to kind of knew this all along. And usually, a, 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 a usual defense is you're only saying that after we've confirmed it. Um, but what did you what, what did you make of that of, of his argument that it's kind of just obvious? I think sometimes that can certainly be true. Um, I, I think he points to some cases in which, you know, some version almost has to be true, right? So it has to be the case that sometimes when we're in a group of people in order to go along and to not stick out, we'll say something that we know isn't true. Right. And so then is it interesting to like demonstrate that in a social situation, like in and of itself? No. Um, I do think that like there's some hindsight bias going on with the interpretation of a lot of studies where, you know, you can come up with the opposite intuition as well. Um, I often have my students in intro psych try and predict how do you think this is going to turn out? And I, you know, they're often wrong. Um, so I, I think that can be overhyped. Uh, I don't think that like everything that we do is just obvious. Um, I do think that we find out things that surprise people. Milgram, as we talked about, surprised people. Um, and then, you know, I think there's value to quantifying things, um, to seeing, you know, which of our intuitions are right and which are wrong. Like we have a lot of intuitions. Some of them are going to be borne out by the data, some not. Um, that's why we do the test. Mm -hmm. um, all right. That's fair. I mean, and, and like I said, I mean, I actually my, my, my introduction to social psychology textbook as an undergrad um, was so sensitive to this critique of obviousness that it had a whole like box uh, devoted to, well, it's actually not obvious, and and you know, kind of pushed our pushed our intuitions. Uh, you know, look, is it is it that opposites attract, or is it birds of a feather a feather flock together? And that's like that's the one example where there are two opposing intuitions. But I wonder how many examples there are where they're opposing like that oh uh, yeah i have a slide with some you know absence makes the heart grow fonder versus out of sight out of mind right yeah uh duncan watts the sociologist actually has a, a book called everything is obvious until you know the answer uh where he he makes this case as well i think pretty well uh, so yeah i uh, the obviousness thing to me it's an issue when the experiment is just a demonstration of something that everybody knows has to be true under some circumstances and the demonstration just consists of finding the circumstances and if that's where you stop then i agree that that's not that interesting okay uh so all right so we're kind of maybe in the middle there with uh with the obviousness point so the second point and i think this one i'm i'm more enamored with um, 
and this is, uh, I think, discussed by Brannigan. And this is this idea that essentially we create experiments to get the answers we want. So, in other words, we don't use experiments as tests. We don't use them as like, well, I'm going to design an experiment so that I can determine, is it X or not X? And I'm going to take those answers seriously, whether it's X or not X. Instead, we're like, I'm creating an experiment to find X. And if I don't find X, I screwed up. And I got to iterate over and over and over again until I find X. Um, and that, to me, is compelling. That, to me... Uh, seems to characterize a lot of what we do. Um, that we actually design studies. Like, I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean our questions. We might have a question. We, we might have an hypothesis. Uh, X leads to an increase in Y. Um, and then we create the conditions such that we find that. So in some universe, X can lead to an increase in Y. But in other, you know, there are other instantiations of X and Y where X can actually lead to a decrease in Y. And I can have, I can create experiments that prove both of those things. Right. So I think this is where the registered re report format is, is really interesting. Um, so the idea there being that uh, you submit a manuscript with just the introduction and the proposed methods and analyses and you're reviewed based on that, and they give you an in-principle acceptance or not, and the in-principle acceptance is now go run the study and see how it turns out, and you're guaranteed a publication as long as you follow your plans appropriately. So that is a really different way of thinking about how to design studies, right? How do you design a study such that it's interesting regardless of how it turns out? Right. It's sort of the opposite of what you were describing and something that like just doesn't come naturally to a lot of social psychologists who I think have been trained in exactly the way that you describe, where it's like, I have this idea. Let's see if we can get evidence for it. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that sort of thinking doesn't the sort of thinking you described doesn't lead to good cumulative science. I think that that's how you end up with a bunch of like sort of disconnected mini theories and one-off findings and so on is like what's prized is going and showing something, not testing an idea in a way that will be interesting regardless of how the test comes out. Right. Like a fair test. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a fair test. Right. Um, it, it's just, it, 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 it's not how we've been doing things and it, I think will involve some relearning. Right. So, you know, I'm a massive fan of registered reports. I think it's the future of, of science. Um, and I look forward to the day when it's the norm, not the exception. I hope that, I hope I will see this day. Um, but let's reflect on our past or our present, um, where this regist registered reports are like the small, small, small minority, like, less than 1% of, of, of what's out there. Like 1% is, is a way overestimate of, of the number of registered reports compared to non-registered reports. Um, so what does this say? And again, let's just laser focus on social psychology. Um, about the state of social psychology where what I described, this kind of uh, essentially confirmation bias. You, you create the conditions to find exactly what you expect to find. 
And I think we're all crafty enough and we can all ask questions in ways that can generate the answers we expect um, if we're clever enough. Uh, and that is how we've built our house. Right? Our house is built on those kinds of experiments. And that's very, very different than let's say observational studies, correlational studies. We're looking at real world stuff. I mean, I'm, I, I can't make up how, well, I suppose I can operationalize things in different ways, but they're just there. I can't manipulate it to the same extent. I can't, I can't engineer it to the same extent as I can in an experiment. So I feel these observational studies of real world data are more truthful. They're less existence proof. So like I I'm not I'm not interested in existence proof. I mean, I am to some extent. I mean, I want to know that something can happen, but I also want to know that it happens often, that it's a regularity. And are experiments simply existence proofs? At least as you know, as conceived so far. Yeah, well, they they certainly don't have to be. Um and it may be that you could abuse another method in the same way just as easily, and we happen to have settled on experiments. So I can imagine if you're doing observational work, you know, it really depends on what you're measuring, right? And you can pick your outcome to give you the results that you want. I, I don't know how much of this is like, how much of this problem is, is specific to experiments of if you have an approach that's entirely confirmatory, you're you're not going to make a lot of progress because you're. What was the quote from the book that you're unwilling to say no? Let me find this quote because I love this quote. Um, a science that cannot say no to anything does not have a have the capacity to grow. Right. So. I don't know that experiments are especially bad in that regard. I think you can get there by choosing your observations in purely observational studies just as, maybe not just as easily, but you can certainly get there. Where, yeah, the the problem that I have with experiments are more about the disconnect from, from reality. And, you know, in fact, like, um, yeah, I don't... I, as a lot of the specific critiques that he has, Brannigan has, like they aren't necessarily specific to these like super contrived experiments because he, he also talks about like the Pygmalion effect, the idea of teacher expectations influencing student performance and the problems in those studies. And those problems are like using a really shitty covariate. Right. Um, and there was obviously super small samples, tiny sample. Right. There wasn't manipulation done. But is the problem with that study the like artificiality of the manipulation or, or that, you know, you can you set it up any way you want to produce the outcome? Not really, because it was a field study. Right. These were actual students. The problem there is that they, you know, came in expecting an answer and they were determined to get it. And they. Yeah. I mean, it's just p-hacking. Right. Hmm. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying, so your problem with experiments is more the external validity issue. Like it's, okay, sure, this can happen, but in reality, that explains 0 0.001 of variance, so who gives a shit? Um, uh, whereas I think what you're saying is the, the true problem is either, is, is, a, is a confirmatory attitude. 
So entering into uh, a study, be it experimental or observational, with the point of view that you're going to confirm what you expected to find. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I think I can. I think I can live with that. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, I think I can agree with that. Um, all right, so I think we're 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 pretty much done here. We've exhausted the topic, but I want to leave with what I think is a friggin' hilarious quote. Uh, this is again from I believe it was from this y y Yosemite conference, um, and oftentimes you hear. Uh, excuses made for psychology, maybe not social psychology, but psychology more generally that, well, you know, it's a young science and, you know, we're going to have fits and starts and uh, we can't be blamed for our errors because we're just, we're still figuring shit out. Um, and first of all, I want to say that like, we're not that young anymore. We really aren't. Uh, biology is, is older than us, but not that much older. Um, so here's a quote from uh, someone named R.M. Cooper. Um, who said uh, social psychology's failure is not to be attributed to immaturity, but to retardation. <laughs> I just think that's beautiful in so many ways. Yikes.